0: I want to just kind of do a historical flyover for you on the history of interpretation. Now, you might ask, why should we study the history of interpretation? Well, first of all, we study the history of interpretation and how different uh, theologians, pastors, church fathers uh, interpreted Scripture because we can see their errors, we can learn from their mistakes. and But we can also not only see their errors but see the consequences of those errors. For example, if you go back and you study in early church history, as they shift from a literal interpretation to an allegorical interpretation, uh, Israel no longer means Israel, the church no longer means the church, Israel means the church, and the church means Israel. And they just become code words for God's people, and God's people are all the same, that there's not a distinction and what they ended up doing with that was that the church replaces Israel as God's people. And so then the land promises, for example, when God told Abraham, I'm giving you the land that's bordered by the river Euphrates and the Great Sea, that this is, uh, and the river of Egypt, this is not a literal piece of real estate, that this is now becomes heaven. And so... um In that allegory, the church's allegorical interpretation, the church replaces Israel, and Israel now becomes the bad guy in history because the Jews killed Jesus, and it gives birth to anti-Semitism. Now, not everyone who believes in replacement theology has necessarily carried it out to the extent of anti-Semitism, but it certainly is the soil... The 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 bed of soil that produces that that plant and produces that fruit. Uh, if you if you don't believe, and if you have a literal interpretation and you're pre-millennial, uh, anti-Semitism has never flourished in that soil. Now you may have individuals who are anti-Semitic. But that may be, that are pre but that may be because they were brought up in some kind of environment or they heard things or for some other reason. It's not related to their uh, theological convictions. So we can learn from the errors of others. We can see the consequences of uh, where their mistakes took them and learn from them. Secondly, it helps us to see the importance of having a correct interpretation. Now, sometimes there are passages of scripture that are just difficult. You do the best you can. You come to a conclusion as to what that means, and then um, over time, you, you, as you continue to study and continue to wrestle with the with the passage, then slowly, gradually, you you learn what you, you may learn what the best interpretation is. And you see the difference that it that it makes. I remember, oh, this was probably 20 years ago. I was ghost um, writing a book for a pastor on on the the whole tongues question, and dealing with the issue of the meaning of the perfect there, and the imagery of seeing face to face, and probably about. Sixty or seventy percent of interpreters will take that face to face as meaning face to face with God, but the imagery there is looking into a mirror dimly. And all of a sudden it dawned on I me mean, when you're looking into a mirror, you're if you're looking at God face to face, you're looking at somebody else. But if you're looking into a mirror, you're looking at yourself. That imagery, and then I did more research into the into the. Uh, Old Testament and similar type uh, passages and everything. And it it really broke. And, and then there was a difference between two different words used for now in the last two verses. And it just kind of broke the passage open. So I went to the pastor who had never, ever taught it that way. And I told him what I what I came up with. He said, you know, that's always bugged me. But I think you solved the problem. But that has always been a weakness in the view that I took. And by looking at it the way I did, it really cracked that problem. So it, it's something that just comes with time. And it wasn't original with me. It came, it came as a result of my study. Later on, I discovered that that was the view of Merrill Unger, and that was the view of Jody Dillo in a book he wrote years ago, and probably a half a dozen other people. But I had never read those views in relation to that study that I was doing uh, at that point. Uh, Third reason we study the history of interpretation is we can learn what influences someone's misunderstanding of God's word. Why is it that you had people ending up with replacement theology? Why did you have people going into allegorical interpretation? What were the influences from the culture, from the philosophy of the time that influenced them in that particular direction? And fourth, it helps us to see how intelligent students of the Bible have sought mystical meanings or multiple meanings of the text. Now, this is, this is something we talked about this during the break. This idea of people who just want to take a shortcut and think that God the Holy Spirit is just going to zap them with the meaning of the text without having to do all of the hard work to investigate the, the words and their meanings and the syntax and the grammar and everything else that goes into it. And also violating basic hermeneutical principles such as that there's, the text has one and only one meaning. No text has multiple meanings. No te- text has, has a multiple fulfillment. Which is what you find in the, especially in the early church. And then a fifth thing, it gives us insight into how others have tried to solve problems and understand difficult passages in the past. We can see what how they tried to wrestle with this particular issue and the, the, the strengths or weaknesses of different views, and we can learn from that. So these are some of the reasons that we're, we study the history of interpretation. Now, I want to start tonight by just looking at uh, allegorical uh, interpretation. Allegorical interpretation. And first of all, we have to define what allegorical interpretation is. Allegorical interpretation looks at the text not in terms of its literal meaning, in terms of the historical, grammatical, lexical meaning of the text, But it seeks a hidden meaning, that there is something in between the words, something under the text or above the text, and we have to come to understand that. Um, It's not the literal grammatical historical sense of the passage that that gives us uh that gives us the meaning. It's this hidden hidden meaning. So that's what allegory is. Allegory Does it look at the passage as a, in terms of the significance of its literal meaning? I think that's the second point. Allegorical interpretation believes that the real meaning or the spiritual meaning underlies the letter or the obvious meaning of the passage. So doing literal, grammatical, historical study on a passage isn't really going to help you get to the allegorical meaning. Because in allegorical hermeneutics, the allegorical interpretation may have nothing whatsoever to do with the literal, historical, grammatical meaning of the text. And often in um, allegorical interpretation, the literal, historical, grammatical meaning of the text is irrelevant. And and it will depend on who you're reading. Some of them will say, oh, it has a value for an immature believer or it has a a, sort of a minor help. They won't completely discount the literal historical meaning, but it's really not relevant to us as Christians. What's relevant is the hidden spiritual meaning. That's what really matters. Third point on allegorical interpretation is that allegorical interpretation often attempts to reconcile apparent contradictions between the literal meaning and totally distinct moral or spiritual principles. Okay, there's this, uh, they'll come to a text and they'll think, oh, there's something that's, that's not right about this, and so it conflicts with some kind of moral or spiritual value, and in order to reconcile it, they discount the literal meaning and go with the spiritual meaning. That's just a basic understanding of what uh, allegorical interpretation means. Now here's a chart that we'll just kind of leave up here for a while Uh, going through an outline starting in the left talking about the uh, origin of allegorical interpretation, which began with the early Greeks, uh, primarily the Greek philosophers and how they were uh, trying to understand the ancient myths uh, of Greek culture and then we'll move across that to the top right talk about the old testament and literal interpretation and allegorical interpretation among in the Jewish community then we'll go to the lower left and talk about uh literal and allegorical interpretation in the early church fathers the uh, the term apostolic fathers doesn't refer to the apostles It refers to the next generation after the apostles, the ones who were taught by the apostles. The apostles lived until the last apostle died, which was the apostle John, roughly 95. The second generation is known as the apostolic fathers, and these would include people like Clement of uh, Rome and Barnabas, uh, not uh, the epistle, the writing called the epistle of Barnabas, uh, the Didache, or the teaching of the twelve. It's a, it refers to a specific group of seven or eight different writings. And then we go to uh, early, the early church, and we'll probably go up. Not much changes in the Middle Ages up to the Reformation. Everything gets pretty much established uh, in, the, in the early church. So we'll start just in the, in the upper left uh, talking about the development of Greek, uh, Greek allegory. Uh, Early Greek philosophers were embarrassed by the uh, anthropomorphisms, and anthropomorphism is when a deity is given the uh, certain uh, features and forms of of human beings. Uh, They were embarrassed by some of the anthropomorphisms, the sexual lust of the Greek gods and goddesses, and their gross immoralities. And this was written down primarily in the works of Homer, uh, in the ninth century BC, and Hesiod in the eighth century BC. And so, as your as philosophy began to develop after about the sixth century uh, BC in Greek culture, the these uh, the, these philosophers were embarrassed by all of this uh, rank immorality. Uh, and uh, things that were going on in in the Greek mythology. And things like Zeus had to defeat the three-headed Typhon. Well, nobody had ever seen anything like that, so that was an embarrassment. Ares, the Greek god of war, delighted in uh, just bloody slaughter. Uh, the Greek philosophers uh, wanted to have a respect for these ancient traditions but it's a little embarrassing that, that these gods and goddesses cavorted like that. So how can we somehow preserve a respect for them and, um, and without just uh, throwing them away? And so to get around that problem, what they did was they allegorized the interpretation that it really wasn't talking about... Uh, Zeus as an individual person fighting a three-headed Typhon. These, this really represented something, uh, something else. And so they came up with the idea of, of allegory. <clears throat> Theogenes of Reg, Regium was, lived about 520 BC in the 6th century BC, and he was the first Greek philosopher known to have allegorized Homer. And there were many others who did this over the following centuries in order to somehow preserve these ancient myths and stories. Uh, This also allowed the later Greek philosophers, for example, the uh, Stoics, the Epicureans, the Neoplatonists, to read their ideas back into uh, these ancient myths because when you get into allegory there's no longer an objective control you no longer have an out of bounds you no longer have a strict set of rules because the literal meaning is no longer of significance so you can uh, one person can say, well, this is what that really meant, and another person will say, no, 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 I meant this. But you have no objective guideline to determine uh, which one is right and which one is wrong. And so this allowed later philosophers to read their philosophy and their beliefs back into those ancient myths. And so by finding the hidden or secret meaning of the text uh they could show that that uh, those stories weren't to be taken literally but they could still have a measure of respect for those ancient traditions now doesn't that sound familiar if you've ever been at a church where where the pastor taught from an and and really allegorizes scripture you realize they don't believe in a literal adam and eve how embarrassing to think that you believe that the earth is only 5 or 6000 years old don't you read science uh, you know, you must really be stupid, but we can respect the Bible because these weren't to be taken literally. They were just stories about how good and evil started, and we can accept that, but we don't have to really believe in a literal Adam and Eve and a literal creation and a literal young earth. So it, it's the same kind of thing, but this all started with the with the ancient Greeks. The same kind of thing happened in the Jewish community. Uh, Of course, with the ancient Greeks, they were just trying to figure out how to deal with their ancient uh, mythological texts. But in Jewish allegorization, uh, this developed out of Alexandria in North Africa. Alexandria was a major university town. It had a major library in the centuries prior to this. Um, They had entered into a, a great competition with the people in pergamum per, or Pergamon in uh, central Turkey, one of the seven letters to, to the seven churches was written to the church at Pergamon and the church at Pergamon had a huge library there and in fact, this was where parchment was first developed was at pergamon and so uh, the the uh, folks in Alexandria entered into this competition who could build the biggest library. And so there was this huge, the greatest library of the ancient world developed in Alexandria. And a lot of the Greek ideas and Greek philosophers that were developing in the 5th, 4th, 3rd century B.C., those ideas were becoming very popular among the Jewish community in the Diaspora prior to the time of Christ. And there was an enormous Jewish population there. That was the area where the Septuagint was translated, because the Jews who lived in, in um, uh, Alexandria no longer spoke or spoke Aramaic or Hebrew; they only spoke Greek. So they wanted to have their Old Testament Hebrew Bible translated into Greek so that they could read it. And that was the translation that, that came from that, known as the, the Septuagint. Um, well, these. G- intellectual Jews in Alexandria had a great deal of respect for Moses but they believed that the Greeks really got a lot of their ideas from Moses and then took took those ideas and put them into Greek, uh, Greek philosophy <clears throat> uh, and two of the most well known are Aristobulus uh, in 160 BC and then the most well-known is Philo, P-H-I-L-O, Philo, who lived, uh, who died actually A.D. 54. So he dies about the time that the Apostle Paul is going on his first missionary journey. So most of Philo's life overlaps with the uh, time of Christ and the New Testament, but he's down in he's down in Egypt. Now, just to give you an idea of how uh, this this uh, allegory influenced Greek Greek thought, when the Septuagint was translated, the Hebrew of Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a man of war. See, that is using an anthropomorphism. The Lord is a man of war. But the Septuagint translates it, the Lord crushing wars. Wait a minute, that doesn't mean the same thing. But see, they're they're rejecting the anthropomorphism, so they're using other, trying to introduce some other idea into the text other than an anthropomorphism. In Numbers 12.8, the phrase in the Hebrew is the form of the Lord, and the Septuagint translates it as the glory of the Lord. And in Exodus 32.14, uh, we read in the Hebrew, and the Lord repented of the evil... And the Septuagint translates it, "The Lord was moved with compassion." so see they 're getting away from these anthropomorphisms, and they're trying to to deal with that so this you see the same influences going on in the Jewish community as you had in the in the Greek community. Well, Aristobulus is the first that we know of that really was setting forth an allegorical interpretation among the Jews. And he believed that Greek philosophy borrowed from the Old Testament. So he's partially right. The Old Testament is first, and then Greek philosophy. But he's wrong in that. And I've heard, I've even heard some Christian teachers say this that that Aristotle and Plato borrowed ideas from the Old Testament. There's just no proof for that at all. But that's what they they had. A, so they wanted to maintain their respect for the law of Moses for the Torah but they also wanted to respect the, these new philosophical ideas from the Greeks, and so they, uh, they developed an uh, interpretation of allegory. Now, we only know of Aristobulus through a few fragments and quotations of Scripture. The main guy really is, is Philo. Philo's influenced heavily by Greek philosophy. He loved Plato and Pythagoras, but he did believe that the Scriptures, the Torah, was superior to Plato and to Greek philosophy. Now he also had a high he, he's got a high view of scripture. He doesn't have a view of of inspiration scripture like we do. He held to a dictation view that the prophets were basically passive and God just spoke to them and they wrote down what God said. <clears throat> That's called a dictation view of inspiration. But in terms of understanding the meaning of the text, he held to a twofold level, what we'll call the body and the spirit. And this is not uncommon in this era where they'll break the meaning of a passage down into the body and the spirit or the body, soul, and spirit. So he has a dual level of meaning in the text. There's the literal meaning, and what they mean by literal meaning is more of a literalist meaning, something that's very wooden, something that that denies figures of speech, something that denies any kind of uh, uh, fluidity of the meaning of language based on the genre, based on the kind of literature, things like that. So he, he has a literalist meaning of the text, which is really for just the immature uh, person. It's, he, so he doesn't see the literal meaning as being completely useless, but it's only for the immature uh, beginning student of Scripture. The real meaning of Scripture, the real spiritual meaning, he called the the soul meaning, and that was for the mature believer or the mature, mature uh, person. So this allowed him to, and these were basically his criteria for, for interpretation. If there was a what he thought, see, it always goes back to what the interpreter thinks. If he thought it was an unworthy statement about God, in other words, something is said about God and he can't figure out why, to him he thinks it's a derogatory image or statement, uh, that means that you have to interpret it allegorically. If there is, seems to be a contradiction in the passage, Well, the scripture can't have contradictions, so if it appears to be a contradiction, we have to uh, interpret it allegorically. Or if there's something, you know, kind of unusual going on in the grammar or the structure, then that's a clue that we need to interpret this in an allegorical manner. Um, For example, he taught that Sarah and Hagar, uh, you know, Sarah is Abraham's wife, Hagar is a handmaiden. And she, he says Sarah represented education, and Hagar, repre- or Sarah represented virtue, and Hagar represented education. And so the story about Sarah and Hagar has nothing to do with the literal, th- literal event that's taking place. It has to do with. Uh, it's really a story all about edu- virtue versus education. Uh, he does a similar kind of thing with Jacob and Esau. It's not a literal Jacob and literal Esau, but Jacob represents uh, prudence um, and uh, Esau represents folly. Uh, Jacob's resting his head on the stone uh, is really an allegory of the self-discipline of the soul. The seven-branched candelabrum in the tabernacle represents seven planets. The meaning they come up with has absolutely nothing to do with the literal meaning of the text. So it just sort of free floats above, way above the text. And you can make anything in the Bible mean anything. You've heard people say those kinds of things. Well, you can use the Bible to mean anything. Only if you're using some kind of an allegorical interpretation. If you're grounded in a literal historical grammatical text, you can't make it mean anything other than what it is saying. Uh, <clears throat> here's a quote from Frederick Farrar wrote a 19th century wrote a really thick book on the history of interpretation it gives this example from Philo's writings he says, if scripture says that Adam hid himself from God the expression dishonors God who sees all things see, how can he hide himself from God can't do that, so that shows dishonor to God therefore it must be allegory If we're told that Jacob sends Joseph to look after his brethren when he had so many servants, or that Cain had a wife or built a city, or that Potiphar had a wife, or that Israel is an inheritance of God, or if Abraham be called the father instead of grandfather of Jacob, those are contradictions, and therefore the passages in which which they occur must be allegorized. The literal meaning is not there. Um, Allegory played a major part at Qumran Qumran is the area down along the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea scrolls were found and most scholars believe that this was a group called the Essenes who were uh, ascetic and mystics and lived uh, and separated themselves from the uh, what they uh, perceived to be the wicked culture of Second Temple Judaism and uh, they had these exclusive communities and they they did copy a lot of the scriptures and they wrote commentaries on some of the Old Testament books and they were influenced by a lot of allegory. For example, I'm going to go back to Lagos here and we're going to look at a passage and we're doing some work last week in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.17. No, that didn't go there, why not? Why isn't that going? Oh, I know, I've got it on. i got to get rid of the Greek. Interlinear won't go to oh, Old Testament, golly. There we go. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you. This is in the middle of the second ch- chapter, which is all in poetry. Uh, the violence done to Lebanon will cover you in the plunder of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land, the city, and all who dwell in it. And this is uh, talking about a historical event that occurs in Lebanon. But according to uh, the Qumran mystics, Lebanon stands for the communal council and wild beasts for the simple-minded Jews who carry out the law. How did they get that? You know, what, what rule led them to defining these terms in that way? So... This is a kind of thing that, that developed within the Jewish community during Second Temple Judaism. Now, the reason that's important for us is because in the early church, one of the strongholds, by the second and third century, one of the strongholds of Christianity in the, uh, in, in the ancient world was in Alexandria. Alexandria's in Egypt, right on the Mediterranean. You ended up, by the uh, 5th century, you had uh, four major bishoprics, four major areas of power, really, in, in Christendom. You had uh, Alexandria in North, uh, North Egypt. You had Antioch, which is a church that was founded during the 1st century and sent out uh, Paul and Barnabas. You had uh, Constantinople, and you had Rome. These, and you had Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always included, even though it was really, really weak by, by that time. There weren't that many Christians in Jerusalem, but it was always in, in included. So those are your major, major centers. And there's a real difference in how the Alexandrians and those in Antioch handled scripture. In Ale- Alexandria, they were heavily influenced by this uh, Greek mysticism, they were deeply influenced by uh, Platonism and Neoplatonism. But in Antioch, they held to a more literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. So uh, Alexandria is v- very significant in the early church, and there's an ideological battle between the two, and ultimately Alexandria wins in, in the battle over, over hermeneutics. And the the major person that comes out of Alexandria is a guy by the name of Origen. We'll get to Origen in just a minute, but that just sort of gives you the preview of coming attractions. Uh, but Origen really develops a, uh, a, a an allegorical interpretation and a whole system of allegorical interpretation that becomes adopted by Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, and by the 5th century, and this then dominates Christendom and what becomes known as Roman Catholic Christendom up until the Middle Ages. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, what we see here is, in summary, that uh, in terms of allegorical Christian interpretation, they use this in the early church to make the Old Testament a Christian document. Rather than seeing that the Old Testament builds, I mean the New Testament builds on the Old Testament, they see that, that the New Testament, everything in the New Testament is really found in the Old Testament, but you just have to put on the right glasses and you just have to know the right code words. But all the stories about Jesus are really pre, are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So that's, that's what they mean when they say the, the Old Testament was primarily a Christian document, not a Jewish document. Um, in their interpretation, they emphasize many of the truths of the Gospels as opposed to going to the epistles. Problems with their approach is, first of all, they had a lack of appreciation for anything historical in their exegesis. In fact, history was virtually ignored by them. They had no concept of what was actually happening in terms of Old Testament history. Second, their method of interpreting the Old Testament or understanding what was going on in the Old Testament revealed an extremely immature, if not infantile, understanding of the doctrine of the progress of revelation. That's going to be one of the principles of of hermeneutics that we talk about, is that God progressively reveals himself through time and so we have to interpret the scripture in light when that we say we interpret the scripture in light of the times in which it was written it's not just in terms of the culture around it but also what's been revealed prior to that because uh Moses didn't know as much as Abraham David uh, I mean Moses knew more than Abraham David knew more than knew more than Moses Isaiah knew more than than uh, uh, David and Daniel knew more than Isaiah and they build on each other as you go through that. It's not just that the Old Testament is given and just sort of dumped there by God, and then you can read all this stuff into it, which is what they were doing. They would cite, the early church fathers cite a lot of Old Testament verses, but they only cite them, you know, they, they just throw them out there, they punctuate and season everything that they say, but they never really are, uh, explain what they mean. If it, if, if it, I, I call it sort of a form of Rorschach exegesis, you know, Rorschach or the, the inkblot test. You just look at a verse in the Old Testament, it reminds you of something, okay, that works, and you throw it in here and patch it into whatever you're writing and uh, make everybody think you're really smart because they can't figure out how that verse relates to what you're talking about. So you must really have... Uh, a key to the Holy Spirit there. Um, third, uh, a third thing is they, there was a problem, is they confused allegory with typology. Now, I haven't talked about typology much. Typology is, is sort of like foreshadowing or patterns. Think of it that way. For example, you have uh, in the Old Testament the, uh, the reality of a sacrifice of a lamb without spot or blemish that is considered a type of Christ. It's foreshadowing or something about Christ. It's a pattern that depicts something about Jesus. In allegory, the lamb wouldn't even be literal. It's irrelevant that a lamb was sacrificed. They never really sacrificed lambs. That's not important at all. What's important is just the spiritual meaning of, of the text. So whenever you read the lamb, you should read Jesus. That's a code word for Jesus. That would be allegory. But typology looks at it as a literal lamb, a literal event on the day of Pentecost, but it's a a symbolic representation of something that will happen in the future. So you're not denying the literal historicity of the Old Testament event, you're just, you just recognize it has an additional significance to it than the literal meaning. You're not replacing the literal meaning with something else. Replacing the literal meaning is what allegory does. So they confuse allegory with typology. Uh, another problem they had is they believed Greek philosophy was in the Old Testament. So you, you not only have the New Testament in the Old Testament, you also have Plato in the Old Testament. You knew that, didn't you, Jeff? You were just commenting last night how, how close the Republic imitated, the Republic of Plato imitated uh, Deuteronomy. I knew that when I was four years old. The, very good. <laughs> you were having hot flashes that early. <laughs> so their method is extremely arbitrary, there's no rules. You can just make anything mean anything at any time. So this the main problem with allegorical interpretation is that it obscures the literal meaning of the text. And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples as we go through some of this. If you're interested in reading more about this, uh, Zuck has a long chapter in it. There's another book by Bernard Ram called Protestant Biblical Interpretation. He's got a couple of chapters on this, and I'm sure there's other places where you can read about it on the Internet. Clement of Alexandria, his dates are right around 150, uh, middle part of the 2nd century. Uh, he's the bishop in Alexandria. Of course, that's where you have allegory. is already established there from the Jewish community. He said there were five possible meanings to Scripture. So you read a passage of Scripture, it can have the historical meaning. That's not that important. Uh, but it can have a doctrinal meaning. Now, the doctrinal meaning is not related to the historical meaning. Don't don't confuse that. You would relate the doctrinal meaning to the historical meaning, but in this they're not none of these are related. Then there's the prophetic meaning. Then there is a philosophical meaning, and then there is a mystical meaning. And all five meanings are there at the same time. but they're not related to each other. Okay, That's Clement of Alexandria. Then you have a another uh, uh, Samaritan Christian, Justin Martyr who lives from 100 to the time of his martyrdom in 164, so he's roughly there in the early part of the second century. He quotes a lot from the scriptures in his writing, usually to show how the Old Testament depicts Christ. Uh, But he reads Christ into everything in the Old Testament, and that's where his interpretations get really absurd at times. Uh, For example, Justin said that Leah represents the Jews and Rachel is the church. And Jacob is Christ who serves both. You got that in your devotions this week, did not you? Sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, when Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands, remember when they're coming out of Israel and the Amalekites attack, and God says, as long, tells Moses, as long as his hands are up, the Jews are going to win, the Israelites are going to win. But if he gets tired and his arms start to drop, then all of a sudden the Amalekites started winning, and so he gets Aaron and Hur to prop his arms up. And they hold his arms up so that they, until the Israelites can win. Okay, that's, that's the scripture. But according to Justin Martyr, Moses' hands there are in what shape? It's a cross. So this is all a story about the cross. You're just reading the cross back into the, to the Old Testament. So this is typical of allegorical and typological interpretation. Uh, Origen comes along, he's got three meanings. Remember I talked about, um, I think it was Philo had two meanings, the literal and, I mean, the body meaning and the soul meaning. Origen did, went in one better and said there are three meanings to the text. The body meaning is the literal meaning, what we would call literal grammatical, but that's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with what God wants you to take away from the text. The soul meaning is the moral meaning. Of the of the passage, and the spiritual meaning, the spirit. You have body, soul, and spirit. So the body is a literal meaning, the soul is a moral meaning, and the spirit is the spiritual meaning, and they're not related to each other. So this is this begins to dominate. Origins allegorical interpretation dominates through the uh, through the Middle Ages. August, excuse me, Augustine basically comes along and institutionalizes origins, allegorical interpretation. The other major figure at that time, near that time, is Jerome, who translates the uh, Old Testament into Latin, and that becomes the Vulgate. He held to more of a literal interpretation. He was an extreme allegorist initially, but he goes to Bethlehem, and uh, I've gone, seen the place where he worked. He was at the Church of the, of the Nativity in Bethlehem, uh, for, uh, for most of his life, and that's where he tra- did all of his translation work. And, but he's very close to Antioch, closer to Antioch than he is to Alexandria, so he gets more influenced by the Antiochian school, and he becomes a lot more, uh, lit- literalistic in his interpretation. Uh, not much else goes on th- through the, uh, uh, period of the Middle Ages. I'll just mention Thomas Aquinas, who's the most famous uh, Roman Catholic theologian in the Middle Ages. He had a literal, held to a literal meaning of Scripture that was basic. So he's not, doesn't deny the literal interpretation, but all of the other interpretations are then built on that. So he has multiple meanings of Scripture. The literal sense is what the human author intended, he says, but God being the author, uh, we may expect to find in the scripture a wealth of meaning. The author of scripture is God, and so he can signify many different things by the words uh, that he uses. So he held to a historical, allegorical, um, and anagogical meaning. Anagogical means it has some sort of, pro- every passage has some sort of prophetic sense. So all of those senses are present at the same time. Now what we're going to see when we get into, the next time I'll come back, we'll start with the Reformation, is the Reformation goes back to the principle of sola scriptura and a literal meaning of the text. But it takes them a while to work out exactly what that means and the significance of that, because all of those Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, um, Balthazar, Hubmeier, All these guys are all trained in allegory. They all come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And they spend, the the uh, reformer generation spends their life fighting for justification by faith. And then it's another generation or two that begin to work out their principles of literal interpretation to other areas of theology. Okay? Anybody have any questions? Anybody know what to ask questions about? Anybody awake? All right. One quick question. Okay. Um when uh when you're looking back at the manuscripts, how do you how do you guard yourself against a manuscript that got tweaked because somebody was copying it and decided, hey, you know, I'm gonna make this shift. Is that where you get into comparing the difference? Yeah, you, you look at a lot of different factors. But usually they had a high respect for the text. What what would more frequently happen is they wouldn't change a word in the text. They would often, like you do, they would write a note in the margin. And then somebody comes along 200 years later and and that word that he puts in the margin gets put into the text. That's how it would happen. So that's why you have to go through and look at these kinds of, of things. Sometimes they're just trying to explain or clarify what's there. It seems a little difficult, so they just put a, a synonym or a word there to clarify, and um, and then it finds its way into the text. But we have so many documents now. It's just a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, categorizing and classifying the documents. I'm no... Uh, But no uh, textual critic. But but basically, they're able to to organize all of the differences within like four or five family groups. Because if you're the copyist in the sixth century and you bring one of the word into an original document, uh, those are not going to be copied by somebody in Rome or somebody up in Constantinople or somebody in Antioch. That's going to influence a whole range of manuscripts that come out of North Africa but it's not going to be necessarily get into a manuscript that's from another geographical area because they didn't have Twitter like we do. All right, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that we have your word and we can go back and study how it's been handled, how it's been taught. We have so much information today. And you're able to guide and direct us through those uh, processes, but it helps us to understand and learn from the mistakes of those who've gone before us. Father, we just pray that you would continue to help us in our study in uh, in learning how to properly understand and interpret your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one thing before you go. Next week, for this week, you should have read Up Through 32 and and, uh, Living by the Book, and next time, read 33, 34, and 35. And then continue to do the next three uh, set sections, working through reading Habakkuk and working through that in, um, in the um, uh, workbook. I think last time I said just... It's working through uh, Habakkuk three seventeen to 19... And that continues all the way through chapter, uh, and then by chapter fifty-four, you're going all the way through uh, the book of Habakkuk. So just keep working ahead in that, and we'll get to that before I go to Kiev. But keep working through that, and what I talk about will catch up to what you've read by the by that time. Okay.